Welcome everyone to the Pop Culture Podcast by Fantastic Geek and our DC Film Fest. My name is Matt and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, everybody. Here today to talk Superman the movie. Indeed, Pete, starting at the literal beginning of full feature movies based on comic books. First, though, as always, uh, checking out some news from around the world of geeky goodness. Star Wars Bad Batch, the final season trailer, is up. The start date, February 21st. Not one, not two, but three episodes in that premiere. I'm sure you must be psyched. I told you last week, last time we talked, persistent rumors that this was coming. Boom, here it is. Fills the void. I don't know, Matt. We're talking DC movies. We'll have some time. Maybe we'll uh, do a little something, something about the final season, the third season of The Bad Batch. Let us know if you want to hear that. Uh, Pete, Star Trek and Star Trek adjacent. I was surprised to see in the last week that Jonathan Frakes, who has been reliably directing for Star Trek for the last several years, is going to take a break from Star Trek to direct all 10 episodes of Deathlands. Yeah, which sounds like something they fed into AI, um, especially given that it's financed by a, a crypto pioneer, Matt. But thank goodness Jonathan Frakes has uh, helped out with the third season of Strange New Worlds. He's done his episodes <clears throat> and he will be going to direct these 10 episodes and then uh, he'll be available probably for um, the Star Trek uh, Starfleet Academy series is where I would bet he'll land next. It's probably also smart on his part as well with almost certainly Paramount ownership uh, changing whether the deal is going to start or be in the middle of or conclude or judicial review, whatever, probably, probably ownership is going to change in the next six months, maybe plus or minus four months in either direction. Um, it's probably a good time. If you're a star Trek director, probably a good time to like just book other stuff until that process is done with and the new owners figure out what they want out of star Trek and so forth. Um, but Pete, I'm so used to normally saying, bringing it back to Marvel. How about bringing it back to the world of comic book stuff? Uh, since, of course, we're going to be talking Superman at length shortly. Um, I was surprised that Deadpool 3 wrapped. I was surprised that, that, that it wrapped in the last week. I didn't think they had been filming a ton of time before the strikes. Uh, and I didn't think that they had been filming a ton of time after the strikes. Maybe I just lost track of time, but the movie's wrapped uh, on track for its uh, summertime release. Yes, Ryan Reynolds taking to social media to post pictures of the Deadpool suit and how much fun he's had making this third movie. See it in July. And we, of course, will get some flickering images when you watch the big football game in February. Well, Pete, bringing things now squarely to Superman, a.k.a. Superman the movie, the 1978 release, to take the top-down view, or maybe before the movie come out, if we want, it came out, if we want to put ourselves in that seat, you think of all the success of comic book movies now and some of the, the things that make that formula, um, the, the Marvel formula, if you will, more recently, a successful formula. Um, 
here's what Superman the movie has, uh, you know, going into it. Obviously, one of the great actors of all time in Marlon Brando, uh, Gene Hackman, the Oscar winner, playing your villain, the surprising choice, and they went through many, many leads and many, many offers and so forth before they got to Christopher Reeve, but undoubtedly the best guy out there as a newcomer, uh, filling out your supporting cast with people like Ned Beatty and Jackie Cooper, uh, Trevor Howard, who had been in, in Hollywood and British films for forever in some of the uh, the Krypton stuff. Add to that the production design, the the then groundbreaking effects and so forth. Pete, I did not know that the quote-unquote Marvel movie formula or the comic book movie formula uh, is from the beginning. It's from it's from this where they did all those things. It's the film here build that would help us believe that a man could fly. I would argue only feasible after the advent, the success of Star Wars a year before, albeit it had been in the pipeline. But I think it primed the pump for the success of this film. Does it hold up in 2024? Bits and pieces, yes. I think overall, you know, the the art form has advanced so much that of the comic book movie. It's very, very difficult to take everything in here and and not critique it. The the curtain pulling back, and then the comic book intro with the Daily Planet doesn't quite square with the way the story's being told never returned to nothing like that. And then, you know, the flyby credits, you mentioned the, the cast. I mean, for a first outing like this to have the titular character build third was certainly a choice. It was, however, echoes, you know, uh, 11 years later echoes of, whose name is at the top of the poster of Batman. You know, it's not Batman, it's Jack Nicholson. Um, Also, I believe I read that those swooping opening credits uh, were were not done with computer. It was done entirely optically and so forth with which... Oh, the amount of optic, you know, later on, the, the really well done miniatures, but you look through the lens of today and you're like, all right, these are, these are clearly little houses. Yeah, it, it, it does. It, the, the effects in this movie, um, particularly as we get to Krypton or as only Marlon Brando is saying Krypton, um, (laughs) you don't, you don't correct Marlon Brando. Brando. Yeah. Marlon Brando, who, who won't memorize, who at this point, well before this movie, was not memorizing lines anymore. It was, people in front of me need to wear placards around their chests and so forth. Um, you wouldn't, and look, it's fun to play that game. Marlon Brando is slowly going crazy, slowly going lazy, whatever. I mean, my goodness, Pete, it's Marlon Brando giving a Marlon Brando performance, grounding this movie where they're all dressed in glowing robes on a big crystal set and whatnot, and like, you believe in the reality of it because of Marlon Brando. Yes. I mean, just a couple more notes about the credits that 
the Godfather here, the 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 link with Brando, the Godfather's Mario Puzo is involved in the story here. And then, as you also noted on social media, Star Trek Nemesis director Stuart Baird is the editor of this film and somehow does better work. Yeah, I mean, and, and thank you for mentioning Puzo. Again, this idea of um, the, the even if we go back to whether it's the you know, the Brian Singer X-Men movies or Blade to a slightly lesser degree, or certainly the, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, like give us, give us a good director. We're not going to make a schlocky thing. Give us somebody who can give us, give us a heartfelt story. Give us a crew that is treating it seriously. Again, you know, Puzo bringing into it, we're going to do this, this kind of, um, you know, here with a thousand faces, Greek myth, kind of tinged not greek myth in what we're seeing but kind of greek myth informed mythology behind the 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 character and so forth this is what we want out of all these movies which is the best the best the best you know you think of you know how many oscar winners have been in marvel movies and things of that sort this is kind of what we want and, and they're doing it from jump street in this movie don't get me wrong not a perfect movie weirdly pete i don't mean to really jump ahead to the end but in, I, I watched this week the uh, the Honest trailer for the Marvels, and overall, it's it's a pretty kind of upbeat, honest trailer. But at the very end, they're like, oh, and there's a villain with a hammer that wants to do some bad things, but uh, it's not really a big deal. Same thing in this movie. It's like Gene Hackman, the second highest billed person, wanders into the movie at the one-third mark, doesn't really play a major role until doing some stuff towards the end. It's all there. We're watching the modern comic book movie, which you know, predates my life and and goes to your own infancy. To the beginning of this film with John Williams' soaring score, first two tracks already crushing it, okay? Detailed this week with his nomination for uh, best uh, original score for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I think it's like his 54th. Um, if you started getting Oscar nominations next year, Matt, and you got two a year, every year, and John Williams got no more, you would tie him by the early 2050s. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible stat. And I can only imagine what it would have been like to be a child, let's say, early 70s and kind of you know disney movies are waning and and there's kind of that you know the the live action disney movie is waning the animated disney movie is waning cinema in general whether as a child you're going to it is not you know it's a little bit more it's the the more gritty kind of stuff star wars explodes the way it does in 1977 now there's this rush as as many of us know historically 1978 1979 there's this rush to do the star wars clone you know whether it's disney's black hole or whether it's some of these you know battle beyond the stars and stuff like that you know and then this movie shows up it's look are there sci-fi elements to it sure the krypton stuff and clearly smart people were like what if we did stars in the beginning what if we did john williams you know blah 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 blah. but i can only imagine what it would be like to be seeing this movie 18 months after star wars came out and it's got 
It sounds a little like Star Wars, courtesy of John Williams. It looks a little of it, but you know it's also in service of eventually getting to this planet and that super grounded modern day stuff. Again, it just must have been magical, particularly, I'm imagining, as a kid in 1978, where maybe you're like, okay, well, Black Hole was a little long, or, oh, this other Star Wars ripoff, you know, it felt like a ripoff or whatever. Meanwhile, this movie is just doing its own thing, and it's got its own pre-existing mythology, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of Star Wars adjacent, but not a Star Wars ripoff. And interesting, too, the the Zod trial right at the beginning, setting up the sequel, um, you mentioned the glowy outfits, Matt, the spinning hula hoop, not so special effects really jump off the screen in 2024. <laughs> um, I will admit they're a little janky, but let's talk about that, that trial in the beginning, this movie and a Superman two were shot concurrently. And at a certain point, everybody got gun shy and said, well, if the first movie's not good, then the second movie is going to be garbage. Um, so they stopped working on the second movie, made some changes to the first one, so on and so forth. We'll talk about Superman 2 next week. The theatrical release is different than Richard Donner's original vision. He was removed from that. You know, the, All sorts of trouble with that movie. But, again, Pete, let's go back. Let, let's rewind to, say, you know, seeing Iron Man in 2008, and you go... And they made another Marvel movie called Incredible Hulk that might kind of be connected. They did, it wasn't two at once, but it was it was subsequent filming. They went from filming Iron Man to filming Hulk. They're doing that, you know, with this hope and a dream that it could be part of a bigger thing. Pete, they're doing that in the making of Superman 1978, not to the same level of execution, but they're doing that in the making of this movie to do two at once, to set up the baddies for the next movie and this one and so forth. Again, I kind of marvel, lowercase m, at what they're setting up here. Again, even if it's not going to really land for Superman 2. It's audacious. And then, you know, once you move through the Krypton sequence and, you know, the the doomed nature, the, the biblical, we're going to send our only son uh, to Earth uh, vibes here. Um, and getting... climate change denying leadership. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Krypton's since been done better. That's one of the things the Man of Steel really gets right. Um, not much after that. Um, but again, for its time, what it gives you, the mix of of both the the grounded and the otherworldly. You know, we get the kind of unusual sequence with the baby and the star thingy. Um, but when they get to Earth, really nailing the Ma and Pa Kent aspect. Okay, perfectly cast those performers. Um, the sequence where the child winds up lifting the truck and the foreshadowing of Pa's fate. Um, you know, it was interesting rewatching this and, and having such firm memories of the beats of this film. Although ironically, I had forgotten about the goofy curtain comic opening. Uh, maybe I'd blacked it out. Um, but 
you know, that that dad's going to have a heart attack and, you know, seeing really how short that time in Kansas is, but how pivotal it is to the rest of the film. There are a number of things going on in the Smallville portion that as a kid, I wasn't crazy about as an adult. I'm not crazy about let's start with the adult end. It's a weird. So we have this, we have this notion that the rocket leaves Krypton and now it's across 28 galaxies. And there's some sort of sense in the dialogue in that journey. And further later on, you know, that it's, Thousands of years have gone by, but by virtue of, I guess, you know, space travel or it's not really leaning into the sci-fi stuff here. But, you know, some of that like Einstein gravity, whatever, like Krypton was destroyed thousands of years ago, but the baby only ages a couple of years. OK, fine. I'm I'm with you so far for your sci-fi hand wavy, whatever. Um, then he lands in what appears to be like the 1950s ish. I'm sitting there doing the math. Like it's been a while since I've seen this. I'm doing the math. Like I know present day is supposed to be like when we get to, when we get to um, Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, like that's supposed to be the present day of 1978, you know, give or take a year. Okay, fine. I'm like, but, but he's a, what is he? Maybe three, he's three. And it looks like it's like 1951. And I'm looking up as I'm watching. Uh, Like I would argue it even looks a little earlier than that. You know, Pete, I wanted to say that and I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah. in high school. Yeah. Um, So, and and I think that in looking briefly online, I think they were just kind of going for the vague sheen of yesteryear, if you will. You know, if you're in the 1970s, you know, kind of similar to Christmas Story. It's 1930, 40, 51. You know, it's kind of like a a, a blah, blah, blah. But again, to me, it was a little, it struck out as a little weird. Um I certainly had remembered Pete what it was like being a kid uh, watching this movie on VHS, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's some noodle there. We'll just leave it at that. I think that they, Pete, they just they went they went for some noodle there as the little kids getting out of the getting out of the crater, and um, it was a choice. The beats that they hit with teenage Clark, um, can we give? young Clark actor Jeff East like for the period that he's in the film just tremendous credit you know we've not yet met Christopher Reeve Superman who we're all going to fall in love with and for the vast majority of the people listening will forever be Superman you know James Gunn's movie goes before cameras uh in March Super, super hopeful that that's going to change a lot of our, you know, perceptions of this film franchise character. But what Jeff East does, what he sells us in the, the high school portion, you know, having this tremendous ability, but needing to to pull it back, being bullied and, you know, taking it um even though he could rip the bully's head off and, you know, the, the relationship that we'll explore in the third film with uh, Lana Lang and, and all of that, you know, the, the train sequence uh, and even the deleted scene where that young girl who sees him running is revealed to be Lois Lane. 
I I was not aware of that deleted scene. You sent that to me yesterday. Um, it's a cute moment. It also, and I had to look this up, it's also the parents in that Lois Lane's parents are being played by Kirk Allen and Noel Neal, who were Superman and Lois Lane in the the film serials from 1948 and 1950. So again, Pete, here we have the the heartfelt cameo for the hardcore fans, you know, albeit in a deleted scene. Um, I think it's- In 1978. Yeah. Okay. But before that would have meant anything, and I'm sure they- publicize that like oh we even got these people but but now to the point that an audience would be like oh uh, that's you know this person and this person oh my god well you You could you could have had 40 year olds going to see this movie either on their own or with their own kids or whatever like you could have 40 year olds that are like that's my superman that's my lois lane i remember going to see the serials in 1948 you know when i was 10 years old you know but nowhere you know how how culture has changed nowhere on a level now that it would be known you know pre-commercial internet all of that um and it's funny to think that's that's where this remains the the og the grandfather in terms of not just being the the primordial comic book movie but with so many of these tropes the idea of turning it to the older generation as the wink as the nod that the 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 reverse of girl watching young clark running the reverse when you're inside the train and and your mom is saying oh lois lane you are you making up stories again you are such a storyteller it's an overly written scene first of all we don't need like lois lane origins which Again, is a comic comic book movie trope like overdoing the origin, or more recently they pull back from doing the origin story. But we don't need that as an early connection. It's cute on the page. Stuart Baird, butcher of Star Trek Nemesis, uh, made, made the good choice here, along with you know whoever else was involved, producers, Richard Donovan, the director, and so forth. That was a scene that needed to come out, and it did. So so thumbs up there. Isn't it funny? that people can succeed so well in Hollywood in certain positions and then not in others. And the idea that Stuart Baird would, would come in, would come onto the set of uh, a film franchise that probably should have gotten at least another film in the next generation crew that it had such a successful run on tv and then it's like yeah well, i i believe this is how you should do how how you should tell your story on top of the fact that you had an oscar nominated writer um from gladiator there uh who turned out a real duck on a script um but you know looking through again today's eyes the the film is cut a little strangely um this next sequence where the crystal calls to Clark, something that actually doesn't get explained until film two, which I went right in and watched <laughs> right after this. And he tells Lois and be like, boy, you know, we talk all the time on fantastic geek podcast, a line of di- dialogue. Hey mom, this crystal called to me and now I must go North instead of, you know, watching that for the first time. What is going on? He he's up in the middle of the night and he's going into a barn. Why? Um, 
I think that perhaps, I mean, first of all, I think that some movie comes out December 1978. I think I read, like, they got done filming a couple months before that. You know, this was a very challenged uh, filming process. The producers, well known for not paying people. And so there was like a shadow producer who was working on it in exchange for money he was owed from other movies from the main producers. But then that guy didn't want to step on Richard Donner's toes and Richard Donner's fighting with them. And again, Richard Donner gets fired from Superman 2 and they need to shoot more footage for Superman 2. So Richard Donner doesn't get the credit because it needs to be the new. There's all this stuff going on in the background, right? I think on top of that, the production, Puzo, the other writers are so committed to um, kind of a notion of this three act, act one, Krypton, act two, Smallville, act three, modern day, except it's two thirds of the movie. So I agree, Pete, I think that there, I would suspect that there's a certain editorial desire in this Kansas portion uh, to move things on through. Um I understand from a writing perspective why Jonathan Kent must die because it's the 1970s. It's a post Star Wars production, and uh, everybody's going to hear with a thousand faces and says, "Dad must die." So, boy, can man me re- me watching this movie VHS in the 1980s. I don't know whether I saw it before or after the Man of Steel miniseries, part of the DC reboot 1986 that brought me into comics but in the comics both of the kents are alive and that was my reality until seeing this movie and all of a sudden dad is dead and 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 so i'm coming with this perspective of not you know like why not just have both parents be alive i also think superman is a superman is a better character with the two parents at home to go back to just within his own realm. You know, you can go home again, being kind of the eternal uh, present of the Superman story. Blasted out now to a DC universe where I personally really love the contrast of Clark Kent has both parents, and that's why he's always Clark Kent at his core, even when he puts on the Superman costume, versus Batman, no parents. That's why... Bruce Wayne is so broken, not that Pete, you can't be successful with less than two parents and so on and so forth. But with these archetypes, I know why the movie killed him off because that's the playbook and that's the, that's, that's what you're supposed to do for drama. Um, but I hope that maybe in James Gunn's telling, we have both parents that just get to survive back at the farm. So we know how often Batman belabors the, the death of both parents and you know the the super cuts of the the pearls falling and everything like that the thing that cements cal l's humanity is the loss of a parent is is the loss of the the one that has more to tell him that there's a reason that he's there you know brando's gonna repeat a number of times dad's greatest commandment that thou shalt not interfere with the history of earth which he breaks okay it's the earthly father that the christ figure in this story uh is more adherent to and and needs to move through the death of 
in order to become the most like us, to understand its fragility, uh, to understand the depths of humanity uh, and and what he's here to do, that he can do whatever he wants, but that he has to protect people, that he will be like people, but never be one of them, uh, except, of course, in Superman 2 for like uh, 20 minutes. As we get to the end of uh, the Fortress of Solitude sequence here, which again is it's it's an interesting it's an interesting scripting choice to be like, and uh, you know, part of the Superman mythos is like the Smallville young, you know, we're not doing Superboy here, but kind of we're doing the Smallville stuff. Then I don't know, yada yada yada, twelve years uh, in ice or something like. Again, it's just a, it's What's a weird with the choice. Weird, like, and we will now travel in in these three years. We will discuss this. Like, does he go there physically? Like, I'm I'm trying to rationalize it as I'm watching. Is is this all like a Kryptonian IMAX movie? Like, what what the hell happened there? Ring, ring, ring. Hey, Pete, it's Warner Brothers from uh, the spring of 1978. Can you put more space stuff in your movie? Because <laughs> uh, there's a theater down the street that's been doing the Star Wars for an entire year now. Um, I, I, look, I would agree. Narratively, I mean, I kind of took it as here is your education. But again, your education that instead of a montage where it's like him... I mean, I'll give a very bad alternative. Him at the chalkboard doing his space maths or whatever. Instead, we montage through space. It's a weird choice. Uh, it's a weird choice. Um, and I don't know. I, I would be curious, like, you know, what the average teen or adult seeing this movie in 1978, what they would have thought of this sequence. I know this. Since we're about to reveal Christopher Reeve, we're about to reveal the Superman suit and all of that. Um clearly a lot of the visual effects the post-production effects would not have been done during production but i think that they had enough sense to be like if we can nail the wire work for some wide shot scenes then even if sometimes some of the special effects stuff doesn't work you will believe a man can fly if i can show you a man flying and that first thing here he steps out the camera pulls back you to my eyes, Pete, I did not see a blessed wire there. I didn't see any sort of janky um, balancing. Just he takes off, flies away. Okay, you could be pessimistic and say he doesn't fly super high because there's a ceiling on the soundstage and he flies to the right so you can fly off camera pretty quickly. But there you get it. Superman, su Superman in suit, flying away, flying for real, flying in camera, you know, and we're off to the races. What's odd unlike its successors there's never any explanation of the suit of the symbol past the visual um the one thing that that just jumps out for me is on the on the cape the all yellow uh superman logo which just looks odd um but this introduction of christopher reeve is iconic and and then to get into the real meat and potatoes of the film to to have the daily planet to have this highly accurate 
for the time depiction of a tabloid style newspaper to get 29 year old Margot Kidder here. Okay. Alongside, as you mentioned, Perry White, and then somehow Jimmy Olsen got even younger to my 48 year old eyes. And, you know, this surrounding cast that I will forever think of with the daily planet, um, alongside the the greatest Superman to date. Yeah. And in speaking of Margot Kidder, uh, I'll do so through the lens of that, which is to come. I remember when, um, Rachel Brosnahan was announced to be Lois Lane in the, in the forthcoming, uh, you know, the next Superman movie. Uh, my uncle said, you know, I don't really know. Is, is she good? I was hoping for somebody else. And I said, you know, if you see her in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know that she can be a lead and you know that she has the tough side, the soft side. She can hit all those emotions in that show. And that's what you need in Lois Lane. And that's what you see here in Margot Kidder. Yeah. Um, there's a, I can only, I can only assume Pete that seeing her, I mean, look, obviously the Lois Lane character goes back to the earliest points of the comics and so forth, but I can only imagine the fact that Lois Lane is one of the reporters. I was going to say one of the guys, but the fact that there's not a gendered thing going on here, I can only imagine that that was, that, 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 that caught people's attention in 1978. Um, and you can write whatever you want to write on the screen uh, on the page. Margot Kidder is the one where you go, "Yes, I believe that she can be typing that article about rapist. How many p's in rapist? Boom! On to the next thing. On to the next thing. On to the next story. You know, she's got. When we get to the 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 blue dress scene a little bit later, she's got the softer side, the more coy. There's stuff in that scene where they are, I you know, wanting each other to to great degree, but. You know, Margot Kidder brings the fact that like Lois Lane is the co-lead with Superman and Clark Kent, and in this movie also has to kind of fight for screen time with you know Gene Hackman, Ned Beatty, Jackie Cooper, Marlon Brando. You know, Margot Kidder is able to punch through all that and say, "This is the Lois Lane. These are the Lois Lane moments here, and and that's what you need out of her, and that's what hopefully you get out of Rachel Brosnahan in the future." And a bite into that tough cookie. You know, the mistake they've made, Bosworth, to a lesser extent, certainly with uh, Amy Adams, Lois is not an action hero, okay? She's a heroine in her own form, that being the truth, the risks she takes to get the story. Um, you know, the in-character decision for her to kick the guy in the, the robbery attempt not to not to do kung fu but you know to wisely drop her purse and then do that and force clark into reacting and grabbing the bullet and and to cement their connection there of of that budding love story yeah i mean we all fell in love with lois lane as a character, just the, the tragic history of, of Margot Kidder and ultimately her, her death by suicide and, and far too young. Um, but yeah, just completely makes this role her own and arguably sets forth the, the, the 
precedence, the the pattern for uh, Lois Lane's forever. This portion of the movie is also the, also the debut of you know kind of Christopher Reeves Clark Kent, which in my, again in my mind from the 1986 uh, you know comic relaunch forward through the Lois and Clark show through the movie subsequent there's been this shift that Clark Kent is the real guy and Superman is the alter ego. We're still kind of existing, not even kind of this movie, Superman 1978 is existing in the, the traditional perspective of Superman is the real guy and Clark Kent is the alter ego. But here we have Christopher Reeve, you know, doing the kind of the bumbling, um, the bumbling Clark Kent. He's really, really great at it. I think to my sensibility, it's a little bit too much. And again, I know where we're coming from in terms of the 50s TV show and the tradition of the comics. And, and you, we've also come from Greek mythology, Marlon Brando, two dads have died. So, you know, again, on the in the script, oh, let's find some areas to lighten things up. Um, I know too, Pete, there was some criticism at the time that, oh, he's playing a stereotype or it's a, it's a Woody Allen Jewish stereotype and things of that sort. Look, baked into this character at its core is the outsider from somewhere else looking to be uh, accepted here in the modern world, in the modern America, whatever it, it might be. Um, and Christopher Reeve is doing a great job with those contrasts. And those contrasts are a reminder to me as well. When you sit and go, gee whiz, what new thing can they do? Like, what new thing could James Gunn possibly do in a Superman movie? Um, again, just to recap, a, a climate scientist working under climate deniers is the only one to realize the situation is bad, sacrifices his son in a biblical, not sacrifice, and gives, gives up his son in a biblical sense, who then comes to middle America where he's given good traditional but non-political values truth justice and what used to be called the american way where he then becomes a journalist and fights mm -hmm. in maybe less in this movie but in in future iterations you know pete the evil new york businessman real estate guy lex luther i hope james gunn can find some of that and i look forward pete in 2025 to people decrying the the climate change illegal alien journalist Superman mm -hmm. movie decrying it as needlessly woke because it's been there since the two Jewish creators of Superman created the character. Those things have been there since day one. Yes. And I just hope for that triumphant return to Clark Kent journalist, which, you know, the man of steel introduces in the final scene just waltzes into the daily planet as if, that would ever happen. Um, but what Reeve does in this dual role, um, I like how you set it up before, you know, that Superman is the identity and, and Clark is the alter ego. Uh, and I know we have, you know, some, some feedback later talking about the, the difference in his posture and his voice when he, he changes mid scene. Um, but something as simple as the, the oversized glasses and, you know, is it is it bumbling? Is it a Woody Allen? I, I don't see that. All, all I see is the innocent, um, you know, 
wrapped, of course, in a in a bodybuilder's body, but somebody could be oversized and and still not, you know, cool or fit in or anything like that. And then at this point of the film to fully delve into the the foils, the the villain, you know, first through the uh, character of Ned Beatty being followed by the cops, his Otis on uh, his way to Lex Luthor's uh, lair where they're going to uh, talk about the plan for the first time. And then, you know, to get somebody on his game like gene hackman to buy into this film you know you can say what you want about brando and i think we did the the find they made in in reeve but hackman to fully buy in and and to think that he's he's done three of these albeit the the third was not a good decision at all um you know just really really legitimized I would argue there are no comic book movies in an alternate universe without the contributions of Gene Hackman. He, he brings a gravitas to a role that I think in the script is functioning as all right. Now that we've gone through all the, the Greek mythology stuff, the dad stuff, the sci-fi stuff, boy becomes a man stuff. And we get to kind of start at, the the superman story that you of any superman story you know there he is with uh at daily planet blah 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 blah. it's kind of like oh now we need a conflict for the second half so let's work backwards from a big uh finale which don't get me wrong that's oftentimes how it's done you pick the <laughs> pick your final battle and then work you know work towards it but I don't know the this missile test stuff, and he's a genius. And again, I know I know some of this is informed by what was the modern Lex Luthor aesthetic, and I know that I am biased because I grew up with the 1986 moving forward, where they said it's 1980s. Let's make him a evil New York businessman who has real estate. Again, Pete, where they got such stuff, I don't know. Um, but like, it's all there's all just a weirdness to it. Like the three of them, him and Otis and Miss Tessmacher, you know, the whole hacking into the Navy missile situation. There, there, there's a humor to it. Um, I, again, I don't want to be overly down on it. It's indicative of what we've seen with comic book movie after comic book movie that came after it, which is sometimes in the first one, you don't have the room to introduce a fully fledged bad guy because you need to do origin story. And then when you do get to the bad guy, you're relying on a great actor to sell two thirds of a plot, not three thirds of a plot that needs to just get you to the big end where you know how it's going to end up anyway, because it's not an Avengers end game or, or uh, whatever, where you're going to lose some people along the way. Right. Greatest criminal mind of his time and all that really kind of set up by the innocence of what Superman will probably disclose (laughs) and then the reverse engineering of it. Um, But at this point, leading into the crystallizing sequence of the film, arguably it's most iconic, the the helicopter uh, bit. Um, although 
Kidder plays it a little over the top there for her to have kept her cool in the robbery attempt. And, you know, the amount of screaming, I don't wonder where sequentially they filmed it because the direction of her in the helicopter is not good, especially after a pilot straight up faints. Um, wake up. Yeah. It, she yells, wake up <laughs> again. I think that, you know, they're a little bit hampered by, we now need to do a thing to introduce. We've introduced Superman to the audience. We need to introduce Superman to Metropolis, uh, and keep Lois Lane in there. Like, Again, I don't. I know they didn't have this concept. Real. I mean, I know miniseries and so forth, and TV shows, of course, existed in the seventies and before. But like the notion of a fifty-five million dollar uh, miniseries that was never going to make sense. Some of this stuff, it's like if only we took more time to get there. Um, certainly, it's it's a great way to get Superman and Lois Lane together. It's always been funny. Uh, and must have only been even more funny in 1978. The whole thing where Clark comes out of the building, goes to the phone, but no, it's the phone. I don't even know what those are called. The phone kiosk. What were those called? The 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 the, the boothless <laughs> phones. You know where you go. Oh, you can't use that as a, a you know as as a storytelling thing the way it's been used in the past. Um, I think the effects for the most part are pretty good here. I, you know, again. In 2024, you can go that there is a practical shot of a real helicopter on top of a building. There is a, you know, rear projection scene where the projector is in a novel use of it underneath the actor and Margot Kidder is hanging above the rear projector. You know, things like that where you go, you can take it apart. I think it, I think it works overall. Um, I think the effects work and clearly the story intent, I think works as well. The revolving door change and the, you know, I've got you, who's, who's got you. Um, and then the, the pimp and his coworkers had, uh, witnessed the change there. It, it's so of the time, but it all works so well in the stew. And as you said, to introduce Superman, not just to, metropolis but but to the world the sequence that that kicks off you know busting the jewel thief uh the boat robbery escape cat in a tree with domestic abuse played for a laugh um and then rescuing the president the unseen thankless president yeah it um i mean it's a good mon. It's not quite a montage, but it's a good montage sequence. There, uh, it's all great gags. Again, it's easy enough to go. Clearly, they used like a rubber. You, you know, when he's hit with the metal on the boat, like clearly it's a it, it's a it's rubber. You know, whatever it is, but it all just works. Um, and even you know, even with that Air Force One portion just as they're starting to like strain credulity it's like what's out there don't worry about it just fly just fly <laughs> like they're saying again i don't know that it is directly a post star wars um effect although it probably is it's just kind of like we're leaning into the fun of having fun here and we're not 
We're not going to be overly worried. You know, there's a certain line where we go and we're just having fun at the movies. It's not, this is not the French connection of earlier in the decade. We're just having some fun at the movies here. This all leading into Perry White's iconic speech here about, you know, his quest to push papers with Superman to find out everything there is to know that it'd be the biggest interview of all time and creating this pathway for Lois to ascend past, you know, the, the sensational to the sublime in her journalistic career. Um, and, you know, Clark watching, giving her the, the little note there that uh, they'll have the interview with the friend um and uh something that i bought at the time but the super cringy can you read my mind um voiceover oh well okay to, to, to two parts there at the dinner these were first of all again these I, I i remember this movie i remember seeing this movie very very well as a kid and the major portions of it there was no point in this movie where i was like i completely forgot about xyz um the dinner interview um being charming and so forth i i remembered maybe if there's one thing i did not remember i mean the subtext in that scene again her saying how how big how big how, how tall are you how much do you weigh like Oh my goodness! I think I know what she's talking about. Even well, colors the whole, my underwear, Matt. Exactly. Well, even that too. Like as a kid, I was just like, "Oh, it's because X-ray vision, man." Uh, maybe, maybe I had an early sense that such such things could be interesting at some point. But you watch it as an adult, and you go, "Oh, oh my!" You know. But it's again, it's played. It's played perfectly down the middle. That like as an adult, you can go. Oh, you can see the subtext of the lines and the plot. I would again just say it's Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. They're what's really selling it. They're, you know, they're selling the whole thing. However, Pete, as a kid, the whole, can you read my, I remember as a kid going, this is dumb. And this feels like it wants to be like Annie or something, but they're not, she's not even fully singing. She's mind poeming. Um, it's, I would agree. That doesn't work. As as great as, kidder is this is this is poorly written and would have been sold better you know all right to to use williams melody to to construct the the spoken poetry whatever the well, i think it, was, it ended up being released as i think the intention was for it to be a a, a musical number of some sort it was released as a single with a proper singer um i think it was just one i think it was just like you get the get the movie and the, the hit single but they didn't it, it didn't quite make i mean it on here. the heels of of disco star wars you know really was there any swing they weren't gonna take probably not um but yeah th- this this is the least viable now point of this movie something that completely shows its time, its age. Um, On top of the fact, yes, he can't lie and he doesn't deal in mistruths and probably wouldn't even understand that there's somebody nefarious enough to take 
all the crumbs that he puts in this interview to use it as a blueprint against him. Again, it's tidy um, storytelling here. Um, and despite what it might, <laughs> despite the metaphoric possibilities, I, I, I do think, I, I hope that James Gunn, James Gunn's Lex Luthor is the, you know, the, the evil billionaire. Um, again, that's the Lex Luthor I grew up with. And to me, that just, that just makes sense from an, from an objective point of view, let alone, you know, if you want to be saying, well, here we can take some pot shots at the worst of capitalism or this or that, or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, since you don't have that here, you can't, you need to be a building up the Lex Luthor mythology, like as you are seeing him again, as you're saying the lines of, you know, I'm the greatest mastermind and so forth. And then you also need to be giving him the tools to be able to go toe to toe with Superman. So it's this interview. It's not, it's not Pete. This is not the best screenplay that Mario Puzo ever wrote. I think, I think there (laughs) might be another movie or two that might be superior to it. Yeah. Um, and and to launch into the rocket uh, hacking, as you dubbed it before, sequence with a scene stealing Larry Hagman around the time that Dallas is starting um, that probably earned J.R. Ewing being shot with the way that he treats Miss Tessmacher. It's, it's such a weird... I mean, look, clearly they would. It's a total 70s trope. Yeah. She, she's a pretty it, lady who's who needs mouth to mouth. So now I'm going to yeah, make out with it. a kiddie movie to to do it this way. Are, are we are we not surprised there are cultural problems in the treatment of uh, in the uh, thoughts of men towards women, young men towards young women, because things like this were played off as, as jokes in the 1970s. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird storytelling choice. Again, amidst this portion where it's like, cause what they break in, the, they, they break into the missile thing, not once, but twice. Right. Um, and she we all... does it a second time. Um, yeah, it, it's, th- this is where the, the script's not fully formed and, or what they decided to build around. There's, there's not enough of a spine and connective tissue. And I will say, I, I, I think that what we are also seeing is evidence of, evidence of the issues of shooting the the two films together i know that originally the ending of the second film was destruction of earth and superman needs to turn back time so and which clearly is how how things are solved here so my point being in the course of this production there's kind of a there's a moving target of what what is this movie how is it ending how is it setting up the next one um and, and again, I don't know when these scenes were shot relative to changes to the plot and the pausing of Superman 2 as a concurrent production, et cetera, et cetera. But it also just kind of feels a little 
I mean, on the one hand, it, it on one hand it feels kind of underpowered relative to the power of Superman. Okay, that's why I think it was Siegel and Schuster that, that thought up Kryptonite, but that's why Kryptonite was devised as a plot device in the comics. This realization that hey, we've created a guy that's so powerful that there shouldn't be problems. Um, so again, on the one hand, it's like this is really just a thing where it's like missile are they nuclear i guess they must be nuclear right pete they are yeah. okay so like i don't mean to downplay the threat of two nuclear bombs going off in you know one uh uninhabited area and the other one you know within our own state in hackensack new jersey but it just feels a little underpowered yes you're also at a point here where um superman has infiltrated lex luther's underground lair looking for evidence of this that the other surprise it's actually the kryptonite i guess we did a good enough job of let's have a scene where our three baddies sit around and do a major plot dump a little bit earlier to talk about planet yeah, explodes meteors let's find off. one here's one in a newspaper and then there's other dialogue in another scene about how that was mysteriously stolen uh -huh. to get us to a point where there's a kryptonite uh uh necklace that takes superman out for a little while yeah. Um, and what I wasn't aware of until this watch that Miss Tessmacher was created for film, was created for this, and, and that she winds up being in, you know, the first two movies and has since been utilized in the comics and, and elsewhere. Um, but yeah, the, the total Bond villain exposition, it's, it's amazing to think that puzo was even involved in a lot of these things um i i guess at the time for warner brothers it was like all right godfather he he can write anything let's let's put him on this uh you know comic book movie we're doing um you know and you can't help but being taken out of the nef next sequence once they've launched the rocket of cliff from cheers taking his first of two uh cameos in the next two movies as different characters um i mean a couple of thoughts first is again there were subsequent drafts uh, post Puzo's involvement, uh, you know, so yes, Warner Brothers wanted to say the Oscar winning writer of The Godfather has written this movie. He contributed, other people contributed, the production was out of control at various points and so forth. Um, I also, I guess, Pete, I take back what I said before. I, I had no idea um, that uh, John Ratzenberger was in this, you know, well known that he's in a scene or two and Hoff and Empire Strikes Back. He, he he has some good close-ups here. He has some dialogue in his own voice and his own accent and so forth. Um, for as much as I don't love the missile subplot here, it is a very it's it's simple, it's elegant, and it works to be like the missiles are going in opposite directions, and he can only save one. And because you know, in, in a moment of humanity, Miss Tessmacher, who Pete, can we point out? Um, saves him from the pool and is wearing a top that in the back is just one layer and you can see her skin and in the front it's it's two layers so you can see less but you get enough to get a certain sense of things and so forth um, 
but this plea, you know, save my mother first. And he says yes, because she has done the right thing to help him. And he has said yes, and he tells the truth and all of that. Um, that's, a, again, it's basic, but it's a very elegant, simple solution to say two missiles, two opposite directions. And he's got to save the one that he promised first, even though Lois is near the other one. And the DNA of the character's creation is is now apparent that Superman will be spread too thin to rescue them from both uh, missiles uh, to ultimately having the one strike the West Coast that he's got to fix the San Andreas fault, which the subterranean sequence is just really kind of goofy <laughs> with the you know red light and you know I, I think i saw something move and the, the dam breaks and jimmy's in danger and you know he, he just can't do it all and oh wait i remember now what about lois oh she's just breathed in dirt yeah it's um the whole thing works, even though on the one hand, it's like, oh, what a small world that these things are happening. You know, I don't think anybody felt that feels that watching it. Um, it just works. And I, I can only imagine what it would have been like seeing this movie brand new um, with the expectations of like, this is a 50 year old property. That's not how math works. This is a 40 year old property when you're seeing it. Uh, in 1978, of course, the status quo is going to be Daily Planet, Clark Kent, Superman, Lois Lane. It's going to be all these things. And all of a sudden, they've just killed off Lois Lane. I think it's an audacious move. Um, I've never loved the turn back time. Turning back time as a storytelling device here. It's like, well, so can't Superman wait, do wait. that? Wait, wait. Cannot interfere. I'm going to remind you, Matt. It's at this point that I'm I'm obligated to tell you. You are not allowed to interfere. <laughs> the affairs of man um I, I as an adult i appreciate that they're now they're bringing back some of that we'll, we'll just say myths of old whether it's greek hero with a thousand faces whatever the notion that now um now superman must reject reject his heavenly father's wisdom totally appreciate it i wish only this way i think pete we were meant to kind of get the impression and he is choosing the wisdom of his earthly father i don't know that we quite get that in we don't get that as clearly as look it is the legendary marlon brando's voice yet again is his face in the clouds as well i don't yes. remember yeah okay so like but again i appreciate i very much appreciate the story arc that though he has learned from his heavenly father he must make his own path as one of us and so forth that all that all works um also say too pete the special effects of time reversing look fantastic helped by the fact that you just run the film backwards but again i think as this production we were like i don't know how we're going to do all of these effects and make them look as good particularly in a post star wars where where you know everything looked so great i know some of the shots aged some of them have been taken out special edition blah 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 but um I think that in a production meeting, you could say every single rear projection wire shot might not look 100% perfect, but at least we're going to have a really cool 
sequence where time flows backwards and we know it's going to look great because we're going to record it <laughs> with time flowing forward and it'll look all natural. Right. And the, the end result being, of course, Lois is saved. He arrives at just the right time. We don't need to belabor it by having the fault, you know, come right after and suck up the car and being like, Oh boy, I, you just got me at, at just the right time. Um, and you know, his, his secret remains. So, uh, and the, the franchise building of dropping off, uh, you know, uh, Luthor and, and Otis, uh, and to have strangely, a lawman have a warden stand in for the the president at at this point in the story and and tell superman that he's you know helping us all out but to have superman take up the partnership that you know well I'm I'm one of you too you know we're we're a team um you know is is the perfect way to to end it leading into him circling the earth with a little less urgency this time and you know spitting us off into the future and uh the hope we all have for james gunn and his his understanding of character what directors since have not gotten about superman clark kent and lois lane and you know Perry White and probably even Lex Luthor. Yeah. And I feel like everything that worked in this film, um, if it has not already been replicated as part of the comic book movie formula, as we've been discussing, like it's all there for James Gunn to pick up, to understand that it's not a story problem that Clark Kent slash Superman is by and large infallible. You don't need to come up with the 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 terrible burden. You know, again, I, I was kind of surprised in Man of Steel. We're going to replicate. We have to have dead dad so he can move on. Like, no, you don't. He can just be at the center. Um, even though it is kind of contrary to narrative convention, he could just be at the center and not be needing to change from good to bad or, you know, ha have a found family at the end. Although there is the, the, the family of, sorts of the daily planet like the movie can move around him um yeah it's this is an imperfect movie but this movie has held up um i can only imagine what it was like in 1978 to know they've already when you saw this on opening night they've already been working on the next one bad news it took three years I, I, my recollection as a kid pete was that's not good I have not rewatched it for our podcast uh, yet. Superman oh, two. I mean, I have not rewatched it for for um, for the podcast. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it. Um, I just remember as a kid being disappointed by it. Oh, I I find it. I'll show my cards on the table now. It's a far superior film. It's it's The Empire Strikes Back. It it takes him and and puts him in the, the worst possible place and maybe, well, no, definitely of all the films understands how difficult it is to write for Superman 
and and does it the most successfully um i'll mention by the way that it's uh it is not only on hbo max all these movies that we're doing for the dc film fest are on hbo or pardon me just max um superman 2 is also on prime video at least as of recording and i think i misspoke pete i think it's nine it was 1980 not 1981 that superman 2 came out but uh, still pete that that is a look towards the future uh shall we head to twitter to hear what some people some of our uh twitter friends and listeners thought about superman the movie let's go all right for the twitter poll the lowest rung was mr luthor uh that got 6.7 percent uh Next up, two birds, I can see the wires, 0%. Three earths, got 20%. And then four planes soaring, got 73.3%. Some replies here on Twitter, Joshua Holdman, that's at J.L. Holdman, said, I saw this for the first time in 1978 in the drive-in theater with my grandparents. Um, Wonderful memory there. That's what's nice about going back to some of these older movies. It's transporting you to... Yeah, different time. I different also place. saw this with my grandparents, and it, it's a it's a core memory. Yeah. Um, next we hear from Stingray. That's uh at Trek Girl 88. Uh she says, I love this movie, watched it many, many times when I was a kid. Christopher Reeve is Superman, except no substitutes. The way he goes from Clark to Superman and back is acting at its finest, and that smile, who boy. Uh, and she included a clip where he's in he, Clark Kent, is in Lois's um apartment and she stepped away and he kind of straightens the back and is ready to present him true his true self and puts the glasses back on i mean it's it is an acting master class again he's third billing etc etc acting master class here next up we hear from it's twitter not life that's at kclyle1 i saw it as a kid but not in theaters i loved it still do uh parts definitely hold up and parts well for the time it was amazing the theme in certain scenes the lowest helicopter save still give me goosebumps uh we also heard from steve thurbridge on twitter i did believe a man could fly when it was released to hbo i remember scanning the guide to see all the times it would be on as a teenager i came to appreciate the allure of margot kidder and to this day i often shout otisville (laughs) i'm gonna start shouting otisville absolutely um pen ultimately we hear from spider ham lincoln at tess lc139 oh i probably saw it as soon as it came to hbo in the early 80s don't recall seeing it at the theater back then it's a pretty uh it, it is a great story transferred to the screen reeves kidder and hackman were perfect excellent score it holds up well and superman can reverse time last tweet pete comes from ben larson at larson ben haven't watched it in years a couple of things that don't quite hold up slapping your child for lying pete let me pause his words there for a second maybe did you watch this on uh max yes okay maybe i just missed the slap i remembered the slap it's there okay it's, it's definitively there i definitely remembered it as a kid and this time yes. maybe i was on the wikipedia for the film as a kid. like all right man you could you could catch a spanking yeah um, yeah but yeah no the it doesn't play well at all. Uh, but back to Ben's words here. Um, things that don't hold up. The slapping. The treatment of Miss Tessmacher. Mainly, I'd completely forgotten the scene where the army squad just about lines up to assault her when she's pretending to be hurt. Weird. But those don't detract from the movie. The performance of Reeve and Kidder are just about iconic. John Williams is always outstanding. 
and elevates every movie he's involved in. This movie created a new genre of movie and still stands among its best. And Pete, to the audio inbox we go, where Jeremy from Melbourne, Australia, has shared some thoughts. Hi, from Jeremy in Melbourne, Australia. It's been a while since I've heard a decent Australian accent on this podcast. Matt, Pete, I certainly welcome your attempts at doing one, mate. I can't wait to hear your new podcast series about these iconic DC movies. While the first Superman was a little too early on in my life to properly get my attention at the time of release, it was one of the first modern superhero movies that aimed to be realistic, but not too gritty. I certainly thought of it as an instant modern classic, but certainly not perfect. I also want to take the time to tell your listeners that I'm proud to be a long-term, sure, low-value, Patreon subscriber for Fantastic Geek. And in this day and age, with high inflation and all my other streaming subscriptions going up in monthly cost, I'm keeping my Fantastic Geek Patreon going because you guys are just the best. I've just upped my membership and hope you're happy to receive my increased monthly Australian dollars and put them towards quality hosting and even the odd treat for yourselves. You certainly deserve it. Look, I can't believe you've both been podcasting for 10 years. That is simply amazing. The consistent quality in your discussions and opinions, as well as fantastic production values, has made me a welded-on, loyal Aussie listener. Please keep it up. Thanks, guys. Jeremy, thank you so much. We, Pete and I both listened to that clip for the first time just, just now in the recording of the podcast. And uh, just thank you so much for, your, for your, your kind words, your words of praise, and, uh, and heck, and the little Patreon uh, ad in there as well. So very, very appreciated. Thank you so much. Yeah, Jeremy, way, way too kind from, you know, the Australian accent imitations that we attempt to do uh, all the way to, you know, just how you've championed us over the years. Uh, So thank you for your thoughts there. And in honor of Jeremy, I'd like to introduce everybody to our special guest. It's Hugh Jackman here to talk about Wolverine. (laughs) I think that was more uh, London underbelly or whatever but yeah thank you again jeremy and uh, indeed thank you to all who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive content all sorts of levels to choose from you place the value on the podcast uh but it takes just a dollar a month to get you behind that door can't contribute right now you can get yourself over to apple podcast you can leave a rating leave a review to any of our 35 podcast feeds to this point and pete part of uh what's ahead for us in this dc film fest that we're doing for january february march and april uh there's two points in that schedule where patrons will be deciding which film we do and first up towards the end of february Oh, how about this, Pete? Let's talk about what's happening for January and February. So we've done Superman the movie. Next week, we'll do Superman 2 from 1980 or or 81. Got to double check that. Then the iconic Batman 1989, uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which I remember seeing in theaters, but I since have read some people consider to be the second best Batman movie of all time and still have that belief. Um, And then we'll be wrapping up the January-February run with either Batman Forever or Batman and Robin. Pick your poison. Uh, That that, that vote is going on on Patreon. And then as we get closer to the end of that, we'll talk about the schedule. It's up on 
social media and so forth. I have some some of the more recent films there for the March April portion. But uh, yeah, looking forward to Superman two next week and then three consecutive Batman movies. Yes, and uh, patrons, you know, pick pick your your poison ivy there. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, not a patron, all the more, uh, incentive, uh, get your dollar in, get your vote heard. Well, and Pete, let's keep this DC conversation going for our DC film fest here. How can people be in touch with you on social media? You can find me on Twitter, on threads, on blue sky at Peter P I E. T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 12,600 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter, it's looking back lost. Do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, and threads where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. All one word with the P and the H like it today. As stated, we'll be doing Superman 2 next week, followed by Batman. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.